Hi, my name's John Bull. I'm Head of High Performance with Management Futures, and this is a really good conversation I had with the guys from Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. Enjoy. Coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. If elite sports started to benchmark themselves against Formula One, so I, one of the bits of evidence from Formula One that really struck a chord with me is, um, I think this is a couple of years ago, but Mercedes at one point in the season were more than a second per lap faster than their um, competitors. And someone asked the question of, of a guy in that environment, if you stopped improving, so if we just said, right, fine, let's move on to next season or let's go to Barbados or whatever, how many races would it take until the, the, the opposition would pass them again? And they said it would be less than three races, probably more than less, but by the third race, they would, they would have clo- more than closed that gap. Yes, welcome back to the show. We have a great guest coming up for you. A man who knows a lot about high performance. It's John Bull. You heard his insight there. He has plenty more of them to come. So stay tuned for an excellent conversation. Before we shoot into it, though, a big thank you to everyone again for sending the messages, for giving feedback on the show. We get humble every time we see a new rating, a review, a new listen. So thanks again to everyone who does tune in each and every week. And if you haven't already, please rate and review the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. One last thing before we start, a big shout out to Hawara for sponsoring this episode. A performance well-being growth partner. You can check out their work and who they work with at hawaralife.com. That's H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Now, let's dive in with John. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Today we spoke with John Bull, specialist in high performance leadership and teams, head of high performance at Management Futures. John has researched the leadership behind some of the best performance environments in the world, in business, in sport, the social sector and science for over two decades. He's applied these insights into his consultancy work, helping spark performance cultures and leadership development processes, such as developing the mindset and skills to get the best out of talent. At Management Futures, John leads in three key areas, leadership skills development, team performance and culture. Today we speak about talent-rich environments, talent and the environment, and the definition using these words around performance. In essence, what do the best have in common? We discuss how the business world differs from high-performance sport, what one world can learn from the other, and approach psychological safety, teaming, and belonging. We discuss the different types of performance environments to understand what kind of environment is actually manifesting, such as achievement-led, and how to enable leaders to blossom. John unpacks the importance of feedback and performance reviews to liberate talent, get better, set higher standards, and further engage people. He explains why he's excited about further researching effort into building relationships, simplifying ideas, and his favorite part of New Zealand, his country of birth. John Bull, thanks so much for giving us your time to come on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing really good. Thanks, David. A real, real pleasure. And uh, look, looking forward to conversation with you both. John, where are you calling in from? We're based in Dublin, Ireland here. So I'm uh, dialing in from Ardmore over in, over in England. So we, we live just, uh, it's, it's lovely, actually. We live on the uh, edge of Dartmoor National Park down here in the southwest. So you have plenty of nature. Plenty of nature. It's, uh, I, I'm originally a, a native Kiwi, so I kind of like the idea of growing up 
with, within sight of uh, sheep and cattle. <laughs> and was it was it the north or the south of that long white cloud in that country? Which which island uh, was it? Pretty, yeah, I grew up mostly in the north actually. I have a real love of the South Island. It's it's those of us have been there. It's pretty unique. But yeah, no, grew up in the north. And what's going on in your life at the moment, John? What's keeping you busy? A lot of work, actually, for Monast. I, I loved, uh, like, like I think a lot of us, I, I loved the break over Christmas, but uh, uh, yeah, a lot of interesting projects on at the moment. We, um, If I connect in with what we do, with what I, I love your guys' pod, by the way. Uh, one, one of the things you talk about on the podcast is, is um, wanting to understand uh, what makes high performers tick. Um, and you know what, what helps them succeed. Uh, one of the things we're really interested in, and I guess I've spent uh, almost 25, 26 years of my life trying to figure out is what's the role of the environment uh, in that. So um, what are the key components of an environment that uh, allows um, high performance to, to high performers to achieve their full potential? Um, so I'm, we, we do a lot of work around that. And I guess a lot of work around how to enable leaders uh, to be really good at that that space in terms of having an awareness of their role in creating the environment and more and more actually looking at the um, kind of key skills that they need to do. So um, we're doing a lot of work around the skill stuff, actually, at the moment. That's a very fast-flowing stream. We've looked a lot at the work and little book of high performance and a lot of the work coming out of Management Futures, John, and it's, it, it really gives so much. That quote dating all the way back to 1942 Mr. Lewin had a formula that performance equals talent by the environment. Would you still say that that is absolutely true? It's because I'm not sure if a lot of people have heard that. And obviously you've just touched on the importance as to the environment for high performers. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a slight simplification uh, of, of this formula. Is it still true? Absolutely. I mean, I, I um, it's one of the things I, I love about sport, actually. And I know a lot of the listeners are, are you know, coming at it from from an angle of, of uh, elite sport. I think sport kind of inherently gets that equation a lot better than business does. You know that that there are two really key ingredients. There is do everything we can to get the best possible talent, um, and then put a lot of energy into how do we create the right environment that's going to allow that that talent to to show up consistently uh, and 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 perform. Um, I one of the things I really love about the equation is the multiplication rather than the add. You know, it's the, it's the idea that um, the talent you have does affect the environment. The environment you have does does affect the talent. So they're kind of uh, inter interrelated in that sense. How can we ensure that? teams are cohesive and and optimal and not dysfunctional because we can all think of environments where there's been an influx of talent really quickly like over an off season over summer some key marquee players have come in and there's been some dysfunction how can you ensure that there's harmony and that there's an opportunity for that team to excel and become high performing and and do what they were supposed to be doing yeah it's it's kind of interesting um it's a great question actually david I, it, um there's a number of elements to that. I, I think one of the things is about we're, we're quite caught on thinking about stable teams as as opposed to actually standing back and just saying, how do you create a, a culture that's really good at teamwork? You know, and I know we've talked before about the work of Amy Edmondson and, and, and the whole notion of thinking about teaming across functions and across people as opposed to within um, a, a stable team. So I think one of that, I think that's one of the keys is to, is to, build a culture in the whole environment around how do we just get really good at collaborating um, and, and doing that at pace when new people come in. So, so building that, that kind of skill set uh, around uh, that. 
is absolutely critical. I think um, we actually did some work within uh, the UK sports system on this just last year, actually. There's something about leaders understanding key transitions in, in teams and, and what works uh, and, and how to navigate those. So I think one of, the, one of the really common transitions that's just constantly coming through sport is new people coming into the team. So leaders just having some, some skills and some tools, if you like, uh, around actually what do we do um, when, when the team is in some transition around that. How much of a different lens and perspective has the pandemic installed for leaders having to look at new people that they onboarded but may not have met in person over a year, maybe two years, given the last lockdown and restrictions? Is there a new approach that they have to take with being remote workers? I think, um, Karen, I, I, so one of the quotes that really struck home to me from a client early on in the pandemic, actually, and, and then I just kept hearing it repeatedly, is what we've noticed in the pandemic is it's really opened up the gap between our very best leaders and, and our kind of people we thought were fine. So um, I, what I think you've got is really good people leaders ha, have actually not missed a beat and they've been really good at still creating that connection. But I think it's really exposed where there is an absence uh, of, of those leader, leadership skills. And to kind of come to your question directly, I think one of the things it's affected for people who have joined a team during the pandemic, and if there hasn't been a lot of or as much face-to-face sort of relationship building and stuff, is is that uh, psychological safety just isn't at the same level. So uh, it, it's unless you put deliberate effort into it, then I think uh, that sense of belonging uh, and, and psychological safety to feel you can contribute, ask for help, challenge, etc., um, takes longer to build. And where would we start? So, I mean, we we work in, in the corporate world and kind of well-being, and we were just off some calls this morning, and, and what came through there was relationship, collaboration, connection. We're, we're missing that because we're, we're still predominantly off-road, offline, at home. Psych safety is something we would have touched on a little bit this morning, but where would you nearly start to get a really sense as the pulse as to how to help a company like that, how to help a group of individuals to bring them together again? Um, so I, I, so it's funny, actually, I, I, we heard, a, and you guys may have heard the same, we heard a number of clients say, we can't wait to get out of the pandemic so we can start to build relationships, which I think is crazy. It, it's actually, if you once you recognize we're going to work remotely, the, the organizations that are really good at that recognize you need to put effort, put effort into building relationships, um, including on, online. There's a, um, kind of connects to this, there's a um, great insight, actually, a colleague of mine just shared with me literally last week which I, I really loved actually is there's a kind of rule of thumb in an orchestra is whenever a new group uh, comes together in an orchestra that they would invest 30% of the time in building relationships uh, and I, I, I just I don't know about you but I kind of thought about this well we you know, the corporate world is a million miles uh, from doing that but even in the sport world actually do, do we do we invest that much energy in building relationships so I, I think to connect both of your questions I think there is a danger that we know how to build relationships when we're face-to-face. And there's a danger we've fallen into waiting for that circumstance to come about as opposed to saying, okay, we're working working remotely. We've got new people on the team who have joined maybe during this. We need to put a lot of energy into how to build that trust, uh, that sense of belonging and relationships while we're working remotely, if, if, if that makes sense. So we often hear the question of what can business learn from sport, especially elite sport. And a fellow New Zealander, Owen Eastwood, has recently read the book Belonging and looking at Whakapapa and that sort of generational looking back, looking forward to where your place is in line. And companies often learn from 
high performing teams. Why do you think there's a bit of a fall down and not a lot of exposed as much as that psychological safety belonging piece that sports teams may have had a little while ago and companies are kind of just getting to know a little bit more? So it's a really interesting question, actually. Um, I, as you can see by that pause, I'm kind of thinking about it live. I think sports taking psychology more seriously than business, actually. I always observe that this idea of obviously part of my work is focusing on environment and sport has got that and lives and breathes the idea of creating the environment where I don't think business does pay nearly uh, as much attention to it. Kind of curious why not, though, which is really interesting. It's... I. I I think there's one of the dangers is we put business into one category. Um, so there are businesses that are amazing at paying attention to environment, do it really, really well, and they get something quite exceptional uh, out, out, out at the end of it. Um, so, I mean, I, I just, just to bring to life, I'll give you two examples. So one that I think a lot of people would know, they just fascinate me as a, as a kind of case study, particularly going back to some of the early days, is Pixar, and just how much deliberate effort they've put into creating an environment of, of creativity and, and just how seriously they take that and kind of um, quite nerdy they get about how to do it. Um, I was reflecting back actually just on a, another environment I studied a few years ago and did a lot of um, work with was um, Fair Trade in, in the UK. And I, um, that's charity essentially, I guess, but um, just to give you a, a sense of the impact of environment. So we interviewed one woman within that environment. I think she, at the time she was about 25 had come from one of the multiples uh, supermarkets uh, into fair trade. Uh, she, her background was in HR. And within six months of working within fair trade, she was heading up a project to uh, look at how to get olive oil out of Palestine through Israel, you know, at age, age 25. And what she was reflecting on is I had no idea what I was capable of until I came to work here. Um, so I, to kind of answer your question, I, I think sport as a whole is better at paying attention to it, but there, but there are equally really, really good examples of this in the organisational landscape that that sport could learn from. And John, we'd love to just dig into the environment that you're creating and how getting a, getting a sense as to what that looks like. And you know, we we've looked again at the at the work coming from from you guys, laissez faire, authoritarian, and then the achievement led, and kind of what that yeah, yeah. what that looks like and. Google did something right and the All Blacks have done something right and Unilever have done something right. The kind of commitment to high standard and that human potential can be unlocked when you really nurture that environment. We'd love you to share, maybe go into that a little bit more because I think a lot of our listeners would get tons of value from it. So I think um, the model you just shared there is really powerful just as a starting point to, to raise some self-awareness of leaders around the environment that they're creating. One of the things we've learned in the space is, is um, you know, it's why you were mentioning about Owen Eastwood, where I love in his work is he keeps it really simple. So the insight from that is I think a lot of us leaders either have a default towards being a little bit laissez-faire, i.e. what comes naturally to us is to give people a lot of autonomy and freedom. We kind of trust people. But the danger of that is we kind of just think, look, if we get a great group of people to give us something amazing will happen and don't do enough to kind of stimulate or create that environment. That would be the laissez-faire, whereas the authoritarian will be where people kind of are, are two directional. So um, want to be the expert and not giving enough freedom uh, and, and, and responsibility. And then getting one of the amazing things about that model is getting people to think about if you look at the really best environments, so increasingly, I kind of use the word empowered because it's the best known word around this, but where you create a really clear framework with, with ambitions, high standards, etc. David, as you, you mentioned, like in the All Blacks, but then you give freedom uh, and, and sort of leadership responsibility within that. 
Um, so we find that framework is really useful from a self-awareness point of view to get leaders to think about where are they on uh, in that and what do they need to do to create uh, a better environment. Um, to bring it back to the work we're doing at the moment, the, 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 the aspect of that, there's a couple of aspects of that paying attention to, but the one that really fascinates me at the moment is collaboration and how do you get better at creating collaboration across boundaries. Um, so I, I, I'm just increasingly convinced there is just so much performance gains available. Uh, and actually, to take it back to sport, it's kind of interesting. Um, I, I may be controversial here. I don't think sport's a particularly good example of teamwork, actually. It is within a stable team, say, on a field. But I don't know what you guys think, but having worked quite a bit in elite sport, it's pretty siloed, actually. Um, and we've spent a lot of time recently talking to people who work, say, on the support function, so strength and conditioning and sports psych and stuff, and actually just saying that there isn't nearly as much openness and debate and discussion around those ideas as there could be. So that's something we're doing a lot at the moment is how do you help environments create much better teamwork across boundaries? John, that's such an interesting point. And the siloed and the kind of, oh, we're keeping our secrets here because this is what's going to work is is profound. We've both a bit of work with the Cleveland Guardians, no longer Indians. And I think it's their leadership group, you know, Dan Coyle, Jay Hennessy, Josh Gibson, people like that, that are open to cognitive diversity, open to, we can learn from the Navy SEALs, what they've done. We can learn from other sports. Let's hear and bring it to the table and actually we'll share what we do we can also think probably of other sporting organizations that do that, that L&D is really, really strong. And But it, it seems to be a rare thing in the sporting world. There's We probably can only think of those on you know two hands, probably. The, um, I don't know. I, yeah, I didn't challenge it. So like, I think sport is, um, I mean, we're, we're all involved in the, net, the network of leaders in sport. Leaders in sport is a really good example that I, that I watch annually, where sport is pretty open to insights from 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 the outside. I, I, the point I would make is actually sometimes I think they're more open to learning and insights from the outside than they are within their own um, system or, or, or trait. One of the things I, I would say we've learned, David, is I think it's easy to assume that someone is closed because they're somehow predicting their knowledge or, or nervous or, or scared. I, I think it's much simpler than that. Actually, I just would. We are very wired to be tribal, divide the world into them and us, and we do that really unconsciously. So if, I don't know, if I think about within our own business, my core team is focused on our high performance services of team coaching and, and leadership skills and culture, and we've got other people in the business who who lead on uh, coach skills development or DE&I and, and, and coaching. I know naturally I'm kind of more focused on my own services. That's just how my brain works. I've got to make quite a deliberate effort to zoom out and go, what's my part in the the, the, the wider um, tribe here? Yeah, that's a great point. And then just building into that, as you said, the siloing, some S&C coaches, maybe some physiotherapists, the job security isn't as secure when you're talking high-performance sports sometimes. Yeah. Is there a risk that they're afraid of opening up or maybe challenging certain practices at the sake of costing their own their own profession, their own role within the club. Yeah, no, and and um, to be fair, Karen, it, it's I don't you know I only spend about twenty percent of my time in elite sports, so you guys would know that better. But that really resonates um, to me, given given the speed of of kind of turnover. And what I do notice is, even if it isn't a formal hierarchy around that, there's often an inherent um, status where coaches would be higher up on on the status. So you know, one one of the insights. I love from psychological safety stuff is we often think about silos um, as being vertical, you know, a silo between 
um, I don't know, in, in, in baseball, major league and, and, and minor league, for instance, whereas I think that the silos in status within the organization are, are massive. And yeah, we if someone is worried about job security, that is naturally going to affect their willingness to speak up to challenge. And with regards to psychological safety, where do people start with getting an understanding as to what that environment looks like? Some of them have an understanding, some of them have never heard of it. And maybe there's an acknowledgement that actually we, we're not great at asking questions, we're not great at speaking up or understanding challenge and how this is better for learning and helping. Where, where would we start with that? So I, for me, as we said before, I, th- I think it's just some, some insights that keeping it really simple. So one of the uh, insights or, or phrases I often come back to is this notion that in any interaction, there are two conversations going on. There's the conversation in our head and there's what we choose to share. So I think one of the things to understand about psychological safety is you're never going to get 100% psychological safety. I think that's really interesting because it, it shows that pretty much in any environment, this is something that we could improve on and, and that would have a significant impact. So even in the really the very very best environments, there will be people with great insights, great questions that they're holding back. Um, so I think bringing that to life for people, I kind of normalizing it. So it doesn't mean we're doing anything wrong. It doesn't mean we've got a really toxic culture environment. If we've got to work on our psychological safety, it's if you want to go after high performance, this is a really productive stone to turn over and, and go after it. So I think that would be one. Um, I think. Psychological safety, there's a lot underneath the word. It's a bit like a word like communication. There's a lot of aspects to it. So it's understanding the different dimensions and and how to think about you can be good on one and not on others. So uh, you could think about psychological safety from a point of view of belonging. You can think of it on do you feel comfortable contributing? So contributing, sharing your ideas in a safe conversation is different to do I feel comfortable challenging? And understanding the distinction between the two we find really powerful in teams because they can start to map out and go, actually, I think people contribute here and they're really fine with that. They don't challenge. Uh, and then an, a, another like, type, for want of a better word, of psychological safety would be, is this an environment where it's comfortable to be vulnerable and admit mistakes uh, or ask for help? So it's for me, it's a bit about sort of normalizing it, make it really comfortable to have a conversation about how do we improve this? And then it's about understanding the different aspects or the different parts of it that's excellent just idea formulating in my head um with the sort of natural highlighting and dominance of social media in these areas and people maybe creating an avatar of who they are of their expressions and what they want to say do you think that has affected people's maybe willingness to challenge or be themselves be authentic within their own roles within their teams and companies and cultures yeah Possibly. And I guess my, my optimistic response to it is, Karen, is I don't want to dismiss the difference of, say, age and, and different generations and stuff in this. But again, as you guys do all the time, if you go out and look at environments that are, that are really good at this, they're doing that with all age groups and they're doing that with all sort of backgrounds and stuff, including people who uh, you know spend their life in social media. So, yes, it may. But I think if, if, the, if you create an environment with really good uh, leadership skills around creating psychological safety and, and you talk about it and you raise it and you focus on it, um, then, uh, you know, I don't think social media is going to stop that personal. I, I think talk- it's in our control, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. John, we'd love to dig into some of the ingredients of that environment, you know, at a little bit more, something we touched on a, a while ago with Doug Lamov, um, 
he touched on the importance of feedback and kind of understanding feedback loops and how quickly you can get that and what that can do in an environment to just raise standards when people are comfortable taking it and giving it and understanding how to use it. In terms of performance reviews in the sporting world, the corporate world, review and reflect, what does that look like and how important is it? I mean, there's so many different aspects to feedback. The, the, um, to, to come to you, your point about reviews, massively Im, Im, important because it's about the speed speed of learning. And, and I think it, where we would go to learn about that is you look at the environments that have the fastest learn rate. So I, I, they're, not, they're not alone, but I would uh, – the two environments that I would look at would be Formula One and um, one that I just have a personal passion for is America's Cup, which essentially my take on this is, is Formula One on water. But the, um, the pace of learning – uh, and actually, my country, New Zealand, on the um, receiving end of the pace of learning in, in um, San Diego some years ago, um, just showing how fast the you know Oracle could do that. That was driven by just a really good feedback um, review process. Um, so I, I I think if we're looking say of an elite sport, if elite sports started to benchmark themselves against Formula One, so I, one of the bits of evidence from Formula One that really struck a chord of me is, um, I think this is a couple of years ago, but Mercedes at one point in the season were more than a second per lap faster than their um, competitors. And someone asked the question of a guy in that environment, if you stopped improving, so if we just said, right, fine, let's move on to next season or let's go to Barbados or whatever, how many races would it take until the, the opposition would pass them again. And they said it would be less than three races, probably more than less, but by the third race, they would they would have closed, more than closed that gap. And then I think, it, so I think it's thinking about that pace of improvement, debriefs and good review systems absolutely um, drive that. If I if I can, if I may, if I zoom back out just on the whole dynamic of, of, of feedback, you touched on a couple of these, but so... I'm really interested in listening to leaders pretty universally. The skill that we find leaders are motivated to get better at is how to have what we sometimes call courageous conversations, but essentially how to give feedback in a context where the person I'm giving that feedback to may not welcome it. So leaders just are absolutely chomping at the bit to get better at at that skill. Uh, And environments, I mentioned them earlier on, Pixar, who are really good at this, invest seriously in that skill. So I think getting people more skilled at being how, how to challenge in a way that and, and be direct in a way that maintains psychological safety has massive benefits. It, David, you actually just touched on another aspect we've started to get really curious about, though, is um, you can train people to be better at speaking up and giving feedback. One of the things that really makes it difficult is people being defensive. So this goes, I, I think one of the dimensions of psychological safety we don't pay nearly enough attention to at the moment is how do you get people to a point where they're more open um, to feedback? Um, because if you do that, it's just a lot easier to, to, to give it. And it's, it surely is a skill that can be trained. I mean, these are Absolutely. skills that a, a leader, no matter where you are, at whatever point of your leadership career, you you can train these to get better at these. Um, so in a couple of instances, so we've been working on this a lot over the last, I, I guess, six or seven years. Um, it, it's what I would say is it's not about knowledge and it's not about theory. It's about practice, um, which to those listening, right, this should make sense. Um, there's a limit to how good you will get at passing a ball by looking at PowerPoint of passing the ball or having conversations about it. You've got to get on, on, on the field. So feedback skills is absolutely, uh, you know, it, it's about practice and feedback um, that we've found works uh, really well in that. But coming back to your point that it's learnable, I mean, the evidence is it's incredibly learnable. There's a great piece of research that was done in the US on this that I loved is um, they they just 
they um, did a social experiment at an amusement park where they basically got someone to push in in a queue where people had been waiting for 10 minutes. And they just tracked what percentage of people uh, objected. Because um, in audiences where I ask, I ask people to put their hand up, would you object if someone pushed in front of you? I typically find about 80% of people put their hand up. And then you say, what do you think the real evidence is? And people admit, no, it's, it's so, in, when the research they did in the US, it was less than 20% objected. So there's a really important insight here. We are nowhere near as good at the skill as we think we are. We say, yeah, we'd object, but actually when faced with it, we don't, we bottle it. But what's fascinating in that is what they did in that experiment later on is they um, planted someone in the queue who did object, but objected really skillfully. You know, didn't make a big deal, basically just said, look, I, I don't know if you noticed, the queue starts back there. And then they went and tested the people who had seen that model of best practice later on in the day, and the number of them that objected went up over 80%, just by showing them a 20-second model of how to do wow. it. Wow. Um, now, we we saw this play out in the NHS and um, some, some of the trusts in, in the UK here that, again, fairly frightening research, really, but looking at the percentage of people who object, if a surgeon hasn't um, sterilized their hands going in before an operation and i'm not going to you know talk about the exact but it's not the percentage you would hope you know it's quite low uh, and they've found by just giving people two or three hours training you can get that up to over 90 percent. so it's it's learnable and and uh, what, what we love is actually quite quite quick to change the behavior amazing I'm just thinking about the queue in Universal Studios. You get angry at yourself and steam carts coming out of your head. Not, not the worst place to do a study either. Where you, you know, not in the lab, but in Universal Studios. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. You're right. Why don't I get on all of that research? Get on a roller coaster before the research. Come on. <laughs> but John, interested on your journey, what got you curious in looking at the high performance and following this path with management futures? Yeah, that's a, um, that's a, it's a great. Great question. Um, so there's, there's kind of two aspects. One, I guess, might be fairly universal. Um, I uh, This is very, very misguided, by the way. But um, when I was a teenager, I had illusions of wanting to be a, an, an Olympic athlete. So um, and and that just, as I think it does for a lot of athletes, particularly these days, it made me super curious about psychology. Um, I was useless. Um, but what, what sport was it? I knew you were going to ask that. Um, so two <laughs> sports I had an interest in. I, so I didn't even commit to one. I was kind of torn across. But the one I, I went the furthest in was boxing. Um, and, okay. and I was useless um, as, as any of my so universities. How was that going for you was the next question. But we'll, <laughs> no. we'll move on that one, John. <laughs> but anyway, I, I love how when we're teenagers, we, we can have illusions. But uh, that was great because it kind of it kick-started in a, in a young me who didn't kind of understand just a fascination with high performance and, uh, you know, Given it was boxing, one of my absolute role models was Muhammad Ali, and I still believe it's actually just such a model of a mindset of excellence uh, in an environment that was kind of trying to tell him that he wasn't, and not just excellence in boxing, but excellence in just so many aspects. Um, the second trigger, actually pretty random as it often is in, in life, is coming across the work of Kurt Lewin that you guys mentioned in our little book of high performance. So and just the research he was doing, he was the first person that I understand to start really getting curious about the environment. You know, this analogy that we put all the focus on the seeds and picking the best seeds, and we're not paying any attention to how fertile the soil is. And, and that's just bonkers. That's crazy. So as organizations, as performance environments, let's start understanding how to create the most fertile soil. But what, and, and keeps me excited, Karen, coming back to your question, is I still think we're still discovering what are the different conditions? So, you know, I, like you guys, I absolutely loved Owen's book, Belonging, and the whole 
torch that just shines on something really obvious actually is a key element of of the environment so what i love is is this sort of constantly doing research and trying to discover what are the different components uh of, of a high performing environment and i think we'll keep learning about that kind of reminds of the book you know rasmus ankerson about the gold mine effect and how he, uh, he there's that documentary on that small little town where all the ice hockey players that made it into the nhl yeah, came yeah. and Sorry, David, just picking up on that. There's a great story in Ethiopia of Bakoji. So yes. Bakoji is a, is a town, a population about 8,000 people. Uh, it has 19 gold medals. Uh, no. no, sorry, actually, sorry, I'm wrong. That's wrong. At the time when I last looked at this, Ethiopia has 19 gold medals. Bakoji has 14 of them. <laughs> Why? Why is the question, though? <laughs> uh, well, there's, there's one PE teacher who's um, basically been throughout the whole of that set up. So I, I would like to believe a pretty exceptional coach uh, in, in the peak. Pretty extreme, actually. I, in the, one of the interviews I was reading is the headmaster complaining that, yeah, they're brilliant at athletics, but they sleep through the rest of the day after the training sessions. But. <laughs> is this the environment where you're more likely to go out with a, a world champion for a jog as opposed to someone, your neighbor? Exactly. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't mind. We'll have to send you to the boxing center, wherever that one is. <laughs> what about environments where you have exposure to a multitude of different aspects that could influence that talent so let's talk about my hometown limerick for a minute if you if you grew up in limerick you play hurling you play rugby you play soccer you you play everything and anything in that any, order probably though in that order in that order yeah, yeah so we're all ireland champs <laughs> um uh, nature nurture john we'd love to just get your sense and onto that you know early specialization general but what's it like in an environment where there's does that give us a better chance to groom better athletes maybe when they're playing a lot of different sports or or if it's just an ice hockey town but they're never going to have anything else i think the evidence on this this is uk sports done some fascinating research into this of you know essentially how do you create serial olympians um and, and gold medal I, I, what i take out of and, and some of you know the work you guys will know anders erickson's work around mastering so yeah. it depends on the sport actually yeah. um so if we look so a system i understand quite well is the, is the olympic system in, in, the, in the uk here so if you look at a sport like football and you guys may understand this better than i do but, but you're not going to create uh, you know uh, ronaldo or messi if they take up football at age 16 never having done it before but actually if we look at say gb boxing really really successful as a, as a sort of middle factory um they have to create um you know kids come in with really good skills but they're essentially creating gold medalists in under four years uh and with their winter olympics coming up you know um, the uk has been doing that loads within within um certain sports where you specialize and just have a really good training environment you can create a champion you know, quite quickly, even cycling, actually. So I think it it goes back to that sort of what hours are required to reach mastery uh, in, in, in the skill will depend on uh, what impact your original environment will have on, on where you get to. And I, and I think that's different by the different sports. Yeah, for sure. Then just considering that, and a lot of the long-term athlete development research would say range, looking at multiple yeah, yeah. sports for, for, for young kids and and development ages, is there anything research, any research done in the business realm or in working realm where maybe there's a broader set of skills? For, uh, agreed, sport would be very finite and probably narrower set of skills that you need to master. Was there any research on maybe a young 
entrepreneur who tries many different many different roles, who tries different career paths, that they become maybe achieve a higher level of success in their career. Not that not that I'm immediately aware of. I, I just kind of related to that. I find it fascinating. Um, there is research into the number of entrepreneurs who have dyslexia, and it's a really high percentage. It's really it's, so it's significantly higher than the percentage of the population with dyslexia. But again, that makes perfect sense to me because in our current school environment, in order to to actually cope, if you've got dyslexia, you've got to develop a really good growth mindset, and you've got to develop some really good uh, innovation, creativity, etc. Which are really good. That's a really good training ground if you, if you're going to be a uh, entrepreneur but actually again Karen, there's a part of me that would sort of zoom out from our question and go we're starting to focus on the individual whereas you know again I, I would say what we have a lot of research in business is what creates a really high forming business well it would be having cognitive diversity it would be about having a, a rich range of different experience so she's chatting to my daughter about it when we were going up to university uh, yesterday we were talking about Bletchley Park and because uh, she's really into the environment. If you look at what they did during the war around Bletchley Park, is they got a massive diversity of experience in there. Um, you know, people in order to create new opportunities. And we're starting to talk about, are we doing that enough in the environment challenge at the moment? Or are we, you know, have we got people in AI and stuff involved? So I think you can look at what circumstances create an entrepreneur. What I'm more interested in is what's the right mix of people you want on a team if, if that startup is going to go from entrepreneur to, to being, you know, a really successful business. Yeah. To solving the enigma. <laughs> yeah, exactly. John, look, tall tree leadership performance. You were there for, you know, the guts of 15 years and then management futures and lots of interesting things coming out of there. What really has your blood boiling? We've touched on courageous conversations, teaming, psych safety, you made that transition probably for maybe for a couple of reasons that we don't necessarily need to dig into, but 2022 has just kick-started. What are you really looking forward to learning and exploring and sharing with, oh, with great people question. like us? Yeah, great. I, I'm, I'm really excited about the whole area of um, collaboration, high-performing teamwork uh, at the moment. I, I just I think we don't understand it nearly as well as we understand individual performance. So I, um, it just really fascinates me and, 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 it's a really rich theme of performance that a lot of organizations have fairly good collaboration, but really quickly could could unlock a lot more performance. So that's that massively excites me at at, at the moment. It's funny actually, if I'm honest, I, I uh, in preparing for this, I, I listened to your interview of Owen and I mentioned I really liked his book and stuff. I when I listened to Owen, what I think he's a master of is simplifying his ideas. You know, really so I think one of the things I on a personal level want to challenge myself to get a lot better over the next 12 months um, apart from managing my time more effectively will be how to really crystallize the ideas in our thinking that are, I think the most important and make them really simple easy to understand and, and therefore easy to act on currently studying Seth Golden and Scott Adams and you know you don't need to use so many words to ask questions so that's what I'm learning John <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. my last one and then we'll kick it back to Kiran and then then that's you John if you're going back to New Zealand or we're going to New Zealand tomorrow and been fortunate to get there a couple of times I would steal the ticket but yeah <laughs> I was going to say what, what would you want to show Kiran I don't think he's been there what what part of New Zealand and why and is it culture is it history what what part of New Zealand would you show to Kiran and why that's a really good question really good question um, scenery wise, which I suspect is not behind your question, but the South Island is just phenomenal. 
uh, although you can do it cheaper if you live in the UK by just going up north of Scotland on a really nice weekend. It's very similar. Part of New Zealand I love is the community, actually. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's still, you learn a lot about a country when you move away from it, right? And, and I think in, it, in its roots, it's still very, very community orientated, quite humble and stuff. So, I, you know, it's anything that's going to get you into a community, um, just spending some time uh, in that. So we're not as good as doing pubs as the UK are, but actually going into a pub and just experiencing the community would, would be one of the things I'd say. Yeah, yeah, I'd be up for that. There's no problem He's up with for that. that. <laughs> just, we just did a metaphorical cheers to you, John. <laughs> yeah. We're not as good as pubs. As, certainly not as good as you Irish at pubs. Yeah. No, we've created a decent product, all right. We, we've honed it over many quite years. proud of it. You've got beers and you've got Steinlager and stuff like that. But uh, you've got one in, you've got Otago's got some beer and stout, I think. But uh, Spates, yeah, we're, we've got Guinness, don't we? Yeah, and the old wooden furniture and smelly carpets. That's it. That's the most yeah. important part. <laughs> John, thanks a million for distilling so many um, fascinating insights and stuff we can learn from, actionable stuff we can actually take into, into today and further on. We've one last question, and that is, what does high performance mean to you, John Bull? Yeah, it's, um, it's great, actually. I, I listened to a couple of your um, previous pods, and, and I got this came up as your signature. I, I love it. I um, And it got me reflecting. I almost walked into a lamppost as I was thinking about it. For me, there, there, there are two elements to it. And so I, I think one is about aspiring to be your best, like really going after your full potential, whether that is an individual or collective. So I think that that's one is just this idea of what I love about high performance is high standards, going after the best. But I think the second element is having a really good time doing that, enjoying the journey. So I, you know, it's been privileged to be involved in the UK system. There's a lot of work going on around this at the moment that if you have one side of it without the other, it doesn't really work. So if you're living a life where you're just focusing on enjoying the journey, but you don't have that kind of challenge and aspiring to do something really special, then I think that misses something that we all love about high performance. But equally, um, if you're going after just trying to be the best in the world at what you do and you're not enjoying the journey, you know, I think that's where some of the issues, a lot of the issues we're getting from. So I, I love that notion. And I'm hearing more and more environments talk about this, that um, we want to combine those two things and we want to get those two things supporting each other that we wake up every morning wanting to be the best in the world at what we do. I love that. I mean, that's, I don't even know why I so, but that's what I love about high performance is that aspiration, but figuring out how to do it in a way that we really enjoy the journey. John, thanks very much for, for opening up, sharing some stories and, and giving, giving not to us, but giving to our listeners and giving to so many. So Stay well. Hope you're. Uh, hope you have a lovely year ahead, and best of luck with everything. Thanks for your time today. You too. Um, really enjoyed it. Thanks both of you. Thank you. Good Thanks, John. Cheers. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat: A Story of High Performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review, and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen, some wish it would happen, others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.